Well, here we are at the final episode of season one of Sample Excavator. This is the second part to the two-part finale, so if you haven't listened to episode nine from last week yet, pause this, go listen, then come back. Since everyone's still listening at this point, presumably listened to at least episode 9, I shouldn't have to introduce myself, but just in case, my name is Angelo Robledo, and I'm a sample archaeologist, digging through the crates of music's past to piece together the stories behind the world's biggest records. For this finale, we are tracking the sound and influence of Nile Rodgers, legendary guitarist, songwriter, and producer, who has had a major part in the development of disco, pop, hip-hop, and even EDM through his unique sound and timeless samples. As a recap, last week we brushed up on early 20th century music history to understand the cultural and musical contexts that disco arose from, which introduced us to the disco band Chic, whose co-founder and lead guitarist was Nile Rodgers. Sheik was responsible for such hits as La Freak and Good Times, both written by Rogers himself. He also wrote We Are Family for Sister Sledge. We ended last week's episode on September 16, 1979, which marks the first time Nile Rogers had his music sampled when Good Times by Sheik was used as the backing track for the first commercially released hip-hop song ever, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. And that's exactly where this episode will pick up. Sylvia Robinson was an ex-recording artist from the 50s and 60s who sought to record and commercially release a hip-hop record in the late 70s. The idea of hip-hop songs with rehearsed verses and repeated chorus was foreign to hip-hop groups at the time. Hip-hop was just performed live largely improvised over a series of breaks laid down by a DJ. She was determined to find anyone who could rap to make a record, and her son pointed her in the direction of Big Bank Hank, who was working in a pizza parlor in Inglewood, New Jersey. After hearing him rap outside of the restaurant, she hired him on the spot, and eventually found Wonder Mike and Master G to perform with him. She created Sugar Hill Records, naming it after the Sugar Hill neighborhood of Harlem, and the group called themselves the Sugar Hill Gang. She got a live drummer and bassist to play the Good Times break on loop, without mistake or interruption, for 15 minutes, while the three rappers rhymed over it. After release, it became the first hip-hop song ever to go top 40 on the charts. Now Rogers heard the record shortly thereafter, and promptly sued Sugar Hill Records for copyright infringement. The suit was settled out of court, and Now Rogers now looks back fondly on the record, often calling it his favorite song to ever sample him. Obviously, Rapper's Delight is not the only song to sample Good Times. At the time of recording this, it has been sampled 199 other times in the last 40 years. Rapper's Delight being the first ever hip-hop song has been sampled hundreds of times itself in the last 40 years. Ironically, Nile Rodgers worked on a project that sampled Rapper's Delight, making the whole thing come full circle. That sample comes from this vocal line from Big Bang Hank during the second verse. I'm sure you immediately picked out where that's been used. 
Believe it or not, now Rogers was a co-writer on Hotel Room Service by Pitbull, which dominated charts in 2009 and used those lyrics as the basis for its chorus. There's another piece of controversy we need to address regarding Rapper's Delight. Big Bank Hank, the rapping pizza guy, apparently did not write his own raps, instead stealing them from a book of rhymes he borrowed from rapper Grandmaster Casanova Fly, which makes this name check at the beginning of his first verse make a lot more sense. Meanwhile, the band Blondie, who we met last episode as the group to actually introduce Nile Rodgers to hip-hop in the summer of 1979, recorded and released their song Rapture in the last months of 1980 on their Auto American album. Lead singer Debbie Harry raps for the last half of the song, name-dropping both Grandmaster Flash and Fab Five Freddy. Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's side. DJ spinning, I said, my, my. Flash is fast, Flash is cool. Francois, c'est pas, Flash ain't no two. And you don't stop, sure shot. Go out to the parking lot and get in your car and drive real far and drive all night and then you see a light and comes right down and lands on the ground and out. Despite the rap being fairly cringeworthy, it's important as the first recorded time a white person rapped, and technically the first time rapping was shown on MTV, as the music video for Rapture was shown in the first 90 minutes of the first ever MTV broadcast in August 1981. Back to Nile Rodgers, Good Times was released in the summer of 1979, precisely when Queen started working on their eighth studio album, The Game. Their bassist, John Deacon, was influenced by the funk and soul sounds becoming popular in America, and wrote the song Another One Bites the Dust, using the Good Times bassline as his inspiration. months after the release of the Queen album, Nile Rodgers released what he had been working on since the downfall of disco, writing and producing Diana Ross's hit solo album, Diana. This album went number two on Billboard, with its lead single, Upside Down, going number one on the charts. It's a different song from that album that also went top ten that I want to talk about. That song, I'm Coming Out, peaked at number 5 and despite Diana Ross's initial dislike of the song, 
it became one of her staples. Almost 20 years later, this song would be sampled to form the instrumental to Mo Money Mo Problems by the Notorious B.I.G., produced by Stevie J and featuring Puff Daddy and Mace, which was released on the Bad Boy Entertainment label in 1997. This song was released after Biggie's murder and went number one, the second posthumous release from him to do so after Hypnotize. This makes him the only artist in history to have two posthumous singles go number one on the Billboard Hot 100. In 1983, Nile Rodgers produced David Bowie's massively successful album Let's Dance. The album had three major hits, Modern Love, China Girl, and of course, the title track. The intro to Let's Dance was sampled by another Bad Boy Entertainment record, this time by Pup Daddy featuring the Notorious B.I.G. and Mace instead of the other way around. The song was Been Around the World, released on Puppy's 1997 album No Way Out. If you wanna dance, we dance. Now trick what lace who? They ain't what mace do. Got a lot of girls that'll love to replace you. Tell you to your face, boo, not behind your back. Niggas talk shit, we never mind that. Funny, never find that. Puff a dime sack, right high shit. Make a nigga save a wine that. Niggas know, we go against the Harlem gigolo. Get your hoe, lick a low, make the bitch drink it though. In 1984, Nile Rodgers produced Madonna's album Like a Virgin, at this point cementing himself as one of the most successful and sought-after producers of the 1980s. He didn't stop there, however, and produced the 1986 album Notorious by Duran Duran, which featured this iconic title track. Funnily enough, this too was sampled by Bad Boy Entertainment, used on another posthumous Biggie release, simply entitled Notorious B.I.G. Yo, check it. Call Lil C's, tell that motherfucker to bring me some no, motherfucking weed no, from the hospital. No, man. Fuck that. Notorious. Tell that reporter to go pick up 10,000 from Dez and go no, take about like 20 G's from Gino. Notorious. Tell that motherfucker to get this nigga next door up out of here, that nigga be showing all night, I can't sleep. And call that big butt nurse with the long hair to come suck my dick. Bad Boy Entertainment, come on. I need about three weeks of recovery But the nurses is loving me Saying the best part of the day is my half Feeding me breakfast and giving me a sponge bath Nigga say I died dead in the streets It's kind of funny that to the average listener It just seems like Biggie sampled Diana Ross, David Bowie, and Duran Duran Three seemingly unconnected artists 
Underneath the surface, however, all three artists are connected through Nile Rodgers, a true testament to how the intangible Nile Rodgers sound itself has permeated music like no other. Despite disco dying in the US by the end of the 70s, disco persisted in Europe. European disco was more inspired by synths and electronic sounds than the funk that inspired US disco, something exemplified by the producer Giorgio Moroder, who used these sounds to make Donna Summer's early synth-focused hits like I Feel Love and Love to Love You Baby. Without any funk and a focus on synth leads and soaring vocals, eventually this genre became too different to be called disco and was renamed High Energy, stylized High NRG. This name change was effectively announced by the 1984 hit dance song entitled High Energy, performed by Evelyn Thomas, which encapsulates this sound perfectly. Last week, we looked at how a commercialization of an underground genre can lead to new innovation in a new underground. Hip-hop was New York's response to the commercialization of disco. However, in Chicago, another genre started forming from the remnants of disco after its collapse in 1979. As technology improved and music production equipment became cheaper, more and more disco DJs started stepping into the producer role, shaping the sounds of dance music to their liking. The Warehouse, a dance club in Chicago, was one of the places this transition happened. Like the originators of disco, its clientele was black and gay, allowing it to continue existing in the underground even as disco died out in the last months of 1979. But with new disco music no longer being produced, these DJs had to reach back to proto-disco, remixing those early dance hits for a new audience. Young kids started buying these older records, and record stores started advertising that they sold music heard at the warehouse. Eventually this got shortened, and signs reading, We Sell House Music, started popping up in Chicago record store windows. The warehouse changed its name in 1983 to The Music Box, but the genre it created, house music, endured. DJs at The Music Box embraced the warehouse style of remixing proto-disco records, increasing their tempo to create even more energy. DJ producers in Chicago started producing their own house music, basically creating original disco songs with electronic machines as opposed to instruments, stripping away the funk, leaving just the four-on-the-floor beat, and pushing tempos higher and higher. One of the first majorly successful house records was Move Your Body by Marshall Jefferson, a track built on an 808 drum machine that represented this house style to a T. I'm about to summarize and overgeneralize the next 20 years of dance music, so I apologize in advance. It's just that too much happens too quickly for me to break down everything, so forgive me. You may be wondering what any of this has to do with Nile Rodgers. Don't worry, we're getting there. DJs in Chicago started incorporating squelchy bass synthesizers to make the acid house subgenre, as Detroit, just 300 miles away, picked up on the house movement, made it more industrial, and repackaged it as techno to remain competitive. This techno was picked up by UK record labels and became massively successful around Europe. 
taking over the high-energy movements happening there. By the 90s, a variety of electronic dance music, or EDM, subgenres existed, such as the aforementioned house, acid house, and techno, but also newer styles like trance, jungle, garage, and drum and bass. These newer forms seemingly drifted further and further away from its disco, funk, and soul roots. However, in the late 90s, house music burst further into the mainstream than ever before with the emergence of French House, which prided itself in its connection to American funk and disco roots, reaching back decades to bring sampling back to EDM. This French House movement is most associated with its most successful representative, Daft Punk, who released their breakout hit Around the World in 1997, the baseline of which was directly inspired by, you guessed it, Good Times by Chic and Nile Rodgers. This song was a huge success, going number one on the US Billboard dance charts. Daft Punk blended the funk, soul, and disco of the past with the electronic instrumentation of the present, directly admitting that they made the song Around the World with Chic and Nile Rodgers in mind. Their first two albums, 1997's Homework and 2001's Discovery, sampled Chic, Sister Sledge, Barry Manilow, Barry White, Electric Light Orchestra, and a dozen other funk and disco artists from the height of disco. In fact, many called their Discovery album not house, but post-disco. This demonstrated the ability for EDM to be melodic and groovy, not just the mindless repetitive drum beats much of the mainstream had written off the genre to be. In 2013, Daft Punk released one of their most commercially successful albums to date, Random Access Memories. Stepping away from drum machines, they reverted to live session musicians to give the project a more organic feel. The entire album sounds oddly familiar, starting with the very first track on the album, Give Life Back to Music. Take a listen. If you're still not hearing it, what about this one called Lose Yourself to Dance with Pharrell Williams? You're not hearing things, those are essentially disco songs released in 2013. But how could two French DJs possibly make authentic disco 35 years after the supposed death of the genre? Well, it turns out that Nile Rodgers again went full circle with one of his samples. He partnered with Daft Punk for this album, co-writing and performing on those two songs you just heard. He actually contributed on one other song for the album that you may have heard of. It's the lead single, Get Lucky. Those guitar licks are impossible to misidentify. That is the Nile Rodgers sound through and through because it's played by Nile Rodgers himself. In case the disco influence wasn't driven home enough, the album features a spoken word track from Giorgio Moroder himself, the genius behind the introduction of synthesizers in disco and the songwriter and producer behind Donna Summer's chart-dominating success. 
The success of Get Lucky cannot be understated, going number one on 44 weekly charts across 33 countries. It sold nearly 10 million copies, putting it in the top 50 best-selling digital singles of all time. Its success helped Daft Punk and Nile Rodgers win three Grammys, which are unbelievably the only three Grammys Nile Rodgers has ever won. This album was nostalgic and futuristic at the same time, a perfect storm that allowed it to become as popular as it was. I want to list off Nile Rodgers' accolades to close out this final story of the first season of Sample Excavator. He's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Grammy Hall of Fame, and the Dance Music Hall of Fame. He is a chairman on the Songwriters Hall of Fame. His total chart success is almost immeasurable, and he has three Grammys. As if that's not enough, here's where it gets crazy. Over the past 40 years, Rodgers has written, performed, or produced projects that have sold a combined total of 500 million albums and 75 million singles. These are staggering numbers that are honestly hard to comprehend. It's uncomfortable to even think about how easy it is for newer generations to forget about him and his impact on disco, hip-hop, pop, rock, and EDM. It's basically impossible to find a genre that hasn't been influenced by his sound and production at some point. That will conclude the story of Nile Rodgers for now, but here are my closing thoughts for this season of Sample Excavator as a whole. You might be here just for the music, or because you're curious about the stories I've discussed, not expecting or willing to take anything else from it. That's totally valid, and I appreciate your patronage immensely. If that's you, and you use this podcast as a fun way to take a break from the more serious or political podcasts or aspects of your life, you're welcome to skip ahead a bit. I promise I don't mind. The reason I made this podcast is much bigger than just the music and the stories, however. There's a deeper meaning to it that I've alluded to here and there throughout the season, but here's where I'll flush it out completely. I'm going to start with my firm belief that understanding the cultural pressures that shaped the music of the past is vital to understanding and appreciating the music of today. There are hundreds of artists, DJs, songs, and stories I just don't have time to go over that will soon be lost to the sands of time. I'm not saying that everyone needs to become diehard funk or disco fans. In fact, I'm not even saying that anyone needs to do that. It's impractical to think that anyone who's 20 years old now would sit down with their future kids and retell the story of funk, disco, and hip-hop the way that my parents taught me, because there was a fast-approaching time where no one alive would have been around for the births of these movements. While the internet does exist to remember this stuff for us, what happens when the last disco listener stops listening? It's argued that sampling is a way to keep this music and these stories alive. Rick Rubin, Puff Daddy, and Dr. Dre sampled the sounds from their childhood like the Isley Brothers, James Brown, and Led Zeppelin. This worked in the 90s because listeners then were familiar with that music as well. Part of the message trying to be conveyed by their songs were the samples themselves. These producers and artists were making subtle nods to those who came before them, and the audience was able to be in on the joke and get an insight into the musical influences of the artist. However, this goes over the heads of newer generations, who listen to and genuinely enjoy artists like Daft Punk, Biggie, and NWA, but aren't even aware of the samples that their most popular tracks are built upon. This even happens today with modern songs, like Kendrick Lamar's 2015 hit, I, which we looked at in episode 3. As discussed, it samples the Isley Brothers, and Kendrick flew to St. Louis to ask Ronald Isley's permission for the sample in person. That tells you that the Isley Brothers are very important to Kendrick, and that he desired to convey that through his music. 
That song went platinum and won two Grammys, but how many people missed the sample and therefore missed the full message of the song? This means that the cultural function of sampling is breaking down in front of our eyes. So maybe then, it's not about keeping disco or Motown alive at all. It's actually more about ensuring the intended context and meaning of modern songs that are built upon sampled sounds is preserved. Sampling only functions as record keeping if people are knowledgeable about sampling, something that has decreased since the 90s. Not to sound like a boomer, but kids nowadays aren't reading record sleeves or liner notes because everything is digital. They're missing out on a deeper connection to music that prior generations had access to without effort. And that's why I made this podcast, to bridge that gap and give respect to the sounds that form modern music. Okay, my rant is over. Thankfully, you'll get the next few months off from hearing my incessant pestering as Guy and I take a break between seasons. Thank you all so much for coming with me on this journey so far. It really has been a dream come true to finally put together and release this project I'd been sitting on for years. Like I said, season two will officially come out in a few months, but we'll be releasing some special content in between so that the wait isn't too unbearable. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Sample Excavator so you can stay in the know during the off season and be notified when special content drops. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram as well at idigitfirst. That's I-D-I-G-I-T-1-S-T. If you have comments or suggestions for season two, feel free to shoot an email to thesampleexcavator at gmail.com. I'm always seeking to make the show the best it can be. As always, you can find links to a playlist containing the songs discussed in the episode, plus some extras in the show notes. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service. This really helps other people find the show so that they too can learn to be stewards of music history. Sample Excavator is researched and written by myself and produced by Guy Tannenbaum. The theme music was written and produced by David Ramos. I will catch you all in a few months, so until then, keep on digging.